Today we're going to be in our major monitor series. So go ahead and open your Bible to the book of Joel. It's right after Hosea. And as we look at this series on the minor prophets, what I want to remind you is this. Is they're not called minor because they're not significant. The only reason they are referred to as the minor prophet is because they're short. And I kind of appreciate that. They get in, they get to the point, and they get out. Some of you may be wishing that my sermons were a little bit more minor in nature. And I understand. These 12 books, very short but important. And they describe how Israel went wrong and what they could do to bring about the restoration that they so greatly needed. Joel's book is the second in the Minor Prophets, but you might not realize this, but Joel's book is actually one of the earliest recorded prophets in all of biblical history. And most people miss this because it's so much later in the Old Testament, but let me just remind you is that your scriptures are not in chronological Order. So Joel would be at one of the very first of the Old Testament books as early as it was. Joel lived and prophesied in Israel's early history after Solomon, but before the exile. He probably, and this is really thrilling, was a student of Elijah. This book was written at a time when a lot of things had gone wrong in Israel, and they had very bad leaders. They had just suffered a national plague, which I'll tell you more about in a minute. Um, everything was down. The mark market was down, the health was down, the morale was down, everyone's finances were down, everyone's faith was down, and almost everyone believed the country was headed in the wrong direction. Now, does that not sound fitting for today? Listen, can I just tell you that as a pastor, there are times when I am reminded of the sovereignty of the Lord. I'm also reminded of God's omniscience. And when I am writing my messages, the way that we do this is I typically in October begin to pray over all of the messages that I will preach for the next year, all of the texts, and I will line this out. In last October, God asked me, I felt very firmly for whatever reason that the book of Joel specifically needed to be on this Sunday, having no idea why, and it humbles me. It reminds me that our Savior is always leading. The question is, are we listening? What's happening in this moment is because there's so many issues going on, everyone in Israel is talking. They're all trying to solve the problem. Y'all, I'm not even going to have to say, does this sound familiar? But everything I say is going to sound incredibly familiar with you today. And as Joel is writing to diagnose the problem, there is only one real problem. And Joel is permeating and trying to get to the major point, the heart issue is that the people have turned away from the Lord. Now hear me, I heard an old dumb joke when I was in high school by a pastor on a pulpit, and it's only fair that I give the dog his due. And what he said was this, he said there was a woman of a specific hair color who went to the doctor, and while she was at the doctor, she kept telling the doctor where things hurt. She said it hurts everywhere. And he said, Point and tell me where it hurts. And she kept pressing. It hurts here, and it hurts on my back, and it hurts on my neck, and it hurts on my forehead. And needed a full body x-ray simply to find out that she had a dislocated finger. What I want for us to understand today is there can be 
one problem that is the source of all of our pain, but yet we do everything we can to address the symptoms, then once again to address the cause and the source of the issue. What we have to understand is that we as a country and as a world, as even as Christians, have a dislocated finger, but I would say rather it is a dislocated heart. We have a dislocated heart that is not in the right Place. And I also think that we have done everything that we can to protect our hearts. Listen, we live in a time where we have grown numb to the hurting around us, have we not? It has become so easy for us to become numb to the hurt in our communities, nation, and world. And what I pray is that not only does God soften our heart, but God puts our heart in the right place. So let's look at Joel chapter 1, and we'll look at verse 4 to start off with. What we're going to find is this inflicted plague, this problem that is happening. In 1-4, Joel opens up his book with this description of this gigantic, incredible locust plague. What the devouring locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the young locust has eaten. And what the young locust has left, the destroying locust has eaten. And I don't know if any of you have actually seen locusts. They are grasshoppers on steroids. Many of you might be aware that currently in Africa, they are suffering a plague of locusts. They are everywhere. I have a friend that is in Malawi, Africa, and he has spoke to me recently about how devastating these locusts have been to their people, to their country, to the crops. And here's what happens. The way that locusts work is it's not just that they are annoying. It's the fact that they have the ability to reproduce so quickly. What happens in Africa, you can currently see YouTube videos of the cloud, of a sky basically filled with clouds of locusts that block out the sun. Here's the thing. They can dig holes in the soil about four inches deep and about half an inch wide that deposits more than a hundred eggs in each hole. And these eggs will literally be everywhere. These holes can be everywhere. About 70,000 eggs can be concentrated into a single square yard of soil. Recognize how massly they can produce. And within a few weeks, these young locusts will hatch. And they haven't formed wings yet. So what they do is they simply hop along the ground like fleas. They can cover 400 to 600 feet a day, devouring all of the vegetation on the ground floor. But as they grow, they develop the ability to jump. And at which point, the range gets higher. They'll start to get into the trees and on top of bushes and on top of crops. And then eventually, they develop Wings and these wings allow them to get anywhere and everywhere they need to go. The sound of the swarms, if you've ever heard the sound of them, it is terrifying. It sounds like you were in rush hour traffic with all of the buzzing around. And witnesses say that within a few days of having these locust swarms, there will literally be nothing left of the outdoors. So in turn, they will be desperate for food. The locusts are starving to stay alive, so then they start to come into homes and eat wood and clothing and anything else that they can get their hands on. Do you recognize the disturbing, destroying, eating power of a locust? They can do just as much damage as hungry middle school girls, amen? Everybody says the boys eat more, but when these little girls are alone, let me tell you, they throw down. 
See, what Joe uses is the locust plague as both an illustration of their sin, but also as a warning because there's a warning of God's future judgment. He says, if you think the locusts were bad, just wait. There's two things that we have to worry about as a representation of God's wrath. And here's what's coming. There's a little army that is coming from Babylon that is coming to destroy you. God is going to send, allow them to come in and take you over because of your wicked ways, but then also the day of judgment, which we'll talk about more later. This locust plague is what Joel is trying to use to help us to understand the devastating, destroying power of sin. Let me remind you that no sin stays small. No sin stays small. No sin stays controllable. No sin could go unnoticed unless it is what? Exterminated. But here's the problem that we see happening. In biblical times, in the book of Joel, if you were to read the whole thing cover to cover, what you will notice that is that farmers decided to destroy the locusts in a way that was not safe. And what they decided to do was to set their fields on fire in order to kill all the locusts, which in turn killed all the plants, but the fire did not stop there. And we have record that that fire continued to spread to destroy all of the vegetation in all of the life. Often when we are trying to destroy sin in our life and we go about it in an inappropriate manner, we do more damage than the sin itself can do. Listen, often in order for us to control our sin, we want to hide our sin or sweep our sin under the rug. And often... What I've heard is that when we sweep our sin under a rug, what we find ourselves doing is allowing our sin to incubate. Our sin going unchecked, going ignored, always grows. What we have to do is to be incredibly and very specific on how to kill the sin in our lives, how to kill the sin in our country. We recognize that everything that is going wrong in this world is because it is a sin issue See, moving from West Texas to East Texas, I've had to learn a little bit about yards. And let me tell you, the yards that you guys have versus the yards that we had in West Texas are completely different. The main difference is grass. We didn't have any of that in West Texas. Most people had rock yards or gravel yards. A lot of people just went ahead and put AstroTurf as their front yard because there was really no way to have a good-looking yard in West Texas. But saying that... I learned about something over here called Bahia grass. And let me just tell you, that ain't from the Lord. Okay? I have been fighting Bahia grass in my lawn, and here's what I decided to do. For the first couple years, what I decided was is that, you know what, if I just get out here every three days and I just cut the Bahia grass before the heads go up, nobody notices it's Bahia grass, and I'm able to hide its Bahia grass, and it fills my yard up and make my yard look better because I think all my yard was was Bahia grass in the first place. And so I just continued to mow it every two, three days before those heads could ever come up. Y'all, can I just tell you, I have logged miles on my lawnmower. Saying that, what I recognized was that I could never get out to mow the grass enough. It was always growing quicker than my schedule allowed for me to mow. And what happens when you allow for the Bahia grass to get the seeds on the top? The seeds hit the surface, and then the seeds then become more Bahia grass. And you find yourself in a continual cycle where you will never beat it unless you choose to do what? You have to do something that's very, very public. This is what I've done this year. I went out and found a very expensive, very concentrated Bahia grass 
killer. Now let me just tell you, spending $40 for just a little two-ounce jug of pellets is frustrating. And walking around the yard and spraying your entire yard is time-consuming. And it's annoying, and you do it in this 90-degree heat with what kind of stuff you guys have here called humidity. It makes me feel like it's 1,000 degrees. Still not adjusted. Saying that, what's happened? All of my neighbors have these great, manicured, beautiful yards, but if you were to drive by my house right now, you would recognize that there's a problem because now there's just a humongous dead patch all in my front yard. But here's the truth. The truth is, is that dead patch represented the bahia grass that was once there. And while the bahia grass kept in check, looked okay, it was a pest in a weed nonetheless, and it had to be removed. But removing the bahia grass now has made it very public that I've had a problem to all of my neighbors. I cannot hide that there is an issue with my front yard because it is just one big piece of dirt at this point. Saying that, I think what we have to recognize is this. We need to hate our sin so much so that we are willing to face the embarrassment as we do things to publicly attack it. We need to be ashamed by our sin, mourning over our sin, recognizing that our sin is a problem because the sin, just like the locust, will always overtake us. And if you just think that you can just keep it under control, you will always get worn out. Sin will always win unless you decide to exterminate the sin in your life. Here's what we're going to see here. We're going to see this moment of the locust plague all throughout Israel's history. See, in Genesis 1-2, God says, when he spoke into chaos, it brought life and beauty out of an empty, dark, shapeless, chaotic Mass. This shows what God's words does when it enters our lives. It brings order and beauty. And when we see the ten plagues that was happening, we recognize that when God allowed for Moses to stand before Pharaoh and he casted the plagues, why did God tell Moses to cast the plagues into the Pharaoh's life? Because if he just simply wanted the people to be free, there's a whole lot of easier ways to do it. Rather than making everybody go through that, he could have simply just changed Pharaoh's heart. He could have simply killed Pharaoh and all the Egyptians. He simply could have just, poof, moved the Israelites overnight out of Egypt into the promised land. There could have been all of these other things that he could have done, but rather what the Lord wanted to demonstrate, not just to the Egyptians, not just to the Israelites, but also us, is that the wrath of God is pertinent. The wrath of God is real, and there are consequences to our sin. Recognize that God wants obedience out of us and he is willing to do extreme things in our life in order to produce this. And why you would think that that is mean, that God would do things in your life to discipline you, recognize it's just like what I'm trying to do with my yard. I care about my yard. I want it to look great, but in order for it to look great, I have to completely tear it down and bring it back from the ashes. And here's what we have to recognize. It's so exhausting to deal with our sin, not just personally, but community, because we have become numb to our sin. I'm reminded of an old sermon illustration of what they used to do in Alaska when they would have a nuisance wolf come into the flock. See, when a nuisance wolf would come to Alaska, into a tribe, into a village, they did a very interesting but yet effective thing. They would take a large blade 
And they would take this blade, of sword, and they would dip it into seal's blood numerous times, coating the blade with the seal's blood, basically making a bloody seal blood popsicle. I know it sounds gross. Then they would bury the head of the seal's the, the blade into the snow, leaving just the blade exposed. Then what would happen is the wolf would come up and begin to lick the blade. Well, the wolf smelling the seal's blood would get excited as he began to lick the seal's blood. His tongue would then melt the blood, allowing him to taste the blood, getting him into a fury. But over time, what happens is that that blade, the cool from the blade, would then numb the wolf's Mouth, And as the wolf's mouth began to get numb, it didn't notice that the blood from the seal was gone. But it was continuing to lick the same blade, lacerating its own mouth. Eventually, it would start to taste the warm blood and get excited because now it was warm blood. And he would start to gnaw on the blade itself. And what would happen is in the morning, the villagers would come out and always find a dead wolf next to the blade. Let me remind you that it is exactly what sin looks like in our life. We go ahead and we get excited about the little thrill in which sin is, but it's just like fishing. It is bait on a hook every single time. And the temptation is not the enemy's goal. The enemy's goal is not to simply make you fall into sin. The enemy's goal is to make you fall away from your father. Recognize that the locust plague was an illustration, a warning of the coming judgment that was on its way. Joel's telling Israel to wake up. Let's look at Joel chapter 1 verses 5 through 7 as Joel prophesizes about the Babylonian invasion that's coming if they don't change, if they don't repent. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you wine drinkers, because of the sweet wine it has been taken from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land, powerful without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has devastated my grapevine and splintered my fig trees. Now let's skip over to chapter 2, verses 3. But behind them, it's like a desert wasteland. There is no escape from them. Their appearance is like that of horses, and they gallop like war horses. They bound on the tops of mountains. Their sound is like the sound of chariots, like the sound of fiery plane, flames consuming stubble. See, this is an illustration of what many theologians would call active and passive wrath. See, the passive wrath of God is God allowing us to suffer the natural consequences of our sin. But then we see the active wrath of God, the lightning bolt of judgment from heaven. Both are illustrated here. When we look in Genesis 3, it's a great example of the wrath of God as he affirms, and as, as the wrath of God is affirming and extending the Lord's judgment over us. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sin and causes God to cast them out of his presence. But Adam and Eve had already chosen to hide from God's presence because God banished them before God ever banished them from the garden. In the story of the plagues, remember scripture says that God's judgment on Pharaoh was to harden his heart so he would not believe. But only after Pharaoh hardened his own heart several times. We get caught up in that all too often. We get in so many debates. Why would God harden somebody's heart? It was a consequence because the Pharaoh was hardening his heart without the Lord doing it for him. So many times the Lord gave him a consequence to 
his action. See, we have to recognize the understanding of what hell is. Hell is the wrath of God illustrated. Hell is the wrath of God shown clearly. When we look at the Jewish way that they describe hell, there's a few things that we have to understand. One of the Jewish ways that they would describe hell all throughout the Old Testament, the way the Jews would still talk about it, is they would say something like the worm that never dies. What that means is that your soul in hell never dies. See, we all have eternal life if you think about it. We all have eternal life, but some will be in heaven and some will be in hell, depending on who you chose to follow in this side of heaven. And saying that with the worm never dying, with the soul never dying, I just want for you to understand that the billions of people that are in hell right now are begging to die. They are begging just to not exist anymore, but the worm does not die. We recognize what outer darkness is. It's the total absence of God and all of his goodness. What about when you hear hell described as the gnashing of teeth? This is a Jewish image that's self-condemnation and loathing. And what about fire? That's another illustration of the agony of God's displeasure. Hell is full fruition of telling God to get out of your life. It's the consequence of what you chose. C.S. Lewis said this, in the end, we will either say to God, thy will be done, or he will say to us, thy will be done. See, there are some amazing quotes that I have found this week. And one, the, the main quote I'm going to give you every time today is through C.S. Lewis. And one thing he reminds us is that sin is like a cancer. It never stops growing and we live forever. There's a lot of things, hear me. <laughs> that wouldn't be worth worrying about if they only grew in us for 70 or 80 years. But I want you to recognize for those people that do not have a relationship with the Lord, they are imperfections. They take with them into eternal life. They take it with them to hell, and they are stuck living in an imperfected way their entire life. I don't know about you, but I get so frustrated with myself on a daily basis. I get so frustrated with myself because just like Paul, I find myself doing the things I don't want to do. I find myself having to completely and constantly putting my mind under subjection, putting my heart and my actions under subjection because what is natural for me is not godly, amen? What is natural for me is not Christ-like. And so constantly I'm in this fight. But here's what I know and I rejoice in the fact is that one day my fight will be over and I will stand before God not fearing my own sin anymore because that will be removed from me. But for those who suffer the eternal wrath of God, their sin lives with them forever. They deal with the issues that they're dealing on earth eternally without the presence of God, without the presence of Christians, without any other distractions. They have to simply recognize and live in their own sin eternally. Do we recognize how bad hell is? God doesn't destroy our lives. Sin destroys our lives. And when we understand that, we'll start to see any earthly experiences as God's judgment, like the plague of locusts as an expression, hear me, of God's mercy. Do you recognize that God's allowing things to happen in our culture, in our community, in our life to expose us to our faults and failures? King David, mighty King David, wrote a song that is still sung today. Search me, O God, and know my heart and see if there are any faults within me. 
And I think my fear is, is that as a Christian culture, we look at this world and we blame it on the world. We look at this world and we blame it on the world. We get caught up in arguing with how bad the world is. We get caught up in being disgusted by their filth and their sin. But here's my question. Has your lack of obedience to the Lord and your lack of desire to love and evangelize and minister and to serve the same people that you get so frustrated with maybe contributed to the fact that they are in the position that they are in? Maybe God wants for you to be the answer to somebody's prayers and to do something in the lives of others that will bring them closer to the gospel rather than simply just being disgusted by their sin. Recognize that your sin of not being obedient and loving them is just as wrong as their sin that you are disgusted by. Do we recognize how frustrating that should make us? Do we recognize that we should be frustrated with ourselves? I think that Christians, we have learned to get so comfortable with sin. But let me go ahead and tell you, I don't believe that we should ever be ashamed of ourselves because we have been bought with a price through Christ Jesus. But here's what I do recognize. I do think that our sin should be shameful to us. I don't think we need to walk around ashamed. I think we need to walk around recognizing that we have done many shameful things. I think we need to recognize that our sin and our hearts and lives, church and community, should bring forth more than just aggravation, but it should bring forth mourning. Listen, as we look through the minor prophets, we're going to consistently see God's people turn away from the Lord. But what happens is every time God calls some faithful people to do some dramatic things in order to see people come back to the Lord. Here's what I want for you to understand. God's trying to do dramatic things in your own life to bring you closer to him and hit hurts. Any experience of the painful consequences of our sin before it's too late is God in mercy and in love trying to wake you up. Can I tell you a quote that hit me in the face? God is not trying to pay you back for your sin. God is trying to bring you back. Recognize this. Listen, I have a friend in ministry and he made a mistake a few years ago and he found himself completely removed from ministry. He found himself completely removed and many churches will never touch this man again. He made one mistake in a moment and most of us, if I were to explain the whole issue, you might go, you know what, that's not that bad. That's not that big of a deal. He got caught before it ever got further. Maybe he should be given another chance. But talking to this young man over the past few weeks, what he told me is this. He said, for a few years, I was so bitter that my ministry was ruined. I was so bitter that it was so public. I was so bitter that everyone knew. I was so bitter that my church chose to fire me over a simple mistake that I didn't feel like was worthy of the judgment that I was being faced. But here's what I recognized. Severe punishment brings forth severe repentance. See, often in our lives, we get so frustrated about how we've been treated. Have you ever heard that the punishment doesn't fit the crime? I think often in our own lives, me included, I can look at things I've gone through in my own life where God has allowed things to happen in my life, where God has sent things down to happen in my life, or when people have done things in my life out of retaliation for a mistake or sin that I had made. And here's what I always do. You know what? They overdid this. Yes, I made a mistake, but they overreacted. They made this so much worse than what it was. I can go and on and on and on and I can argue, but here's what I do know. I do know that when I faced harsh consequences, I never forgot 
about the experience in which I was in. Often God allows for us to go through emotional experiences. Here's what I want for us to understand. If you were to look at science, we would recognize that the memories in your life that are the easiest and the most vivid to remember are the ones that have the most emotion attached. And see, that's why for me, I can struggle with bitterness because there's a lot of emotion in my life for some of the things I've gone through. And it's hard for me to forget those things, to let go of those things. Those things sneak into my mind often. But when it comes to the consequences of our sin, I think God wants us to remember them. I don't think God wants us to walk in shame. I think what God wants us to do is walk in repentance, knowing what our sin brought us to, understanding that our sin put us in a position that we never desired to be. Once again, I feel like we have to understand that there are locusts in our lives, and rather than turning to repentance, we are looking into more and more sin. We get so frustrated with things that draw us into sin. We get frustrated that we can't save enough money. We get frustrated that our marriage isn't going the way that we want it to. We get frustrated that we cannot find the happiness on this earth that we see projected by mainstream media. Church, let me tell you, when we are going out of the expectations of the world of what our life should look like, we will be chasing things that will lead us down the path of destruction, not down the path of righteousness. And here's what I want for us to understand. As we are always looking for earthly solutions, God has more locusts to send down than we could ever find solutions. And we must grab a hold of the fact that the Lord will continue to do things in our lives to bring us back because he so graciously loves us. We recognize that the grace and the mercy of God, grace is giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy is withholding back from us what we do deserve. But hear me, God allows out of love and grace and mercy to have things happen in our lives, consequences of our sins so that we will be conflicted, so our hearts will break and we will pull back from our sin and run to the Lord. When we came to faith in Christ, I think what we expected was that God was just going to do a little basic remodel in our life. What he was going to do is he's going to walk into this house of our life and he was going to find a couple rooms that maybe needed some painting, maybe remove some rust, maybe make sure that there was just, you know, updates. But I think we need to recognize is that what God's doing is a complete demolition of our life. When y'all said yes to Jesus, I think we so often forget that God wants to destroy who you once were and rebuild you again in righteousness. That's why we call it being born again. Because something has to die. Your old self has to die. You have to be willing. Can I say some harsh words? You have to be willing to kill the old you because the old you is not worthy of the new life that you're walking into. It can't accomplish the new life that God has called you to live. And what we're expecting is for God just to have these sweet little moments in our life where he just does a little bit of touch-ups. But you recognize that God has to do demo in our lives. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, he writes this, many people come to God because they realize their house has broken down and they need God to fix it. And at first you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and so you're not surprised. But then he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. 
and he does not seem to make any sense to you. And you wonder, what on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house than the one in which you expected. He's building a new wing here. He's putting an extra floor there. He's running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent, cute little cottage, but he is building a palace he intends to come and live in himself. Do you recognize that the Lord resides in you? You are the house in which the Holy Spirit dwells, and I think our sin need to sicken us. Do you recognize that people go to jail often for allowing their pets to live in filth? Have you seen those shows about hoarding? Do you recognize that we have allowed the Holy Spirit to live in the filth of our lives, and that should cause mourning? That should cause us to be repentive, not simply because of the consequences that God brings forth. Can I just tell you this? I think that more than fearful of consequences, we should have such a respect and love for our Savior. We should be operating out of love, not out of the fear of consequences. Recognize the more that we love God, the consequences don't matter because we simply want to please him, listen, I don't want for my Savior to have to live in the filth of my life. I don't want him to have to observe the sin that I go back to. Listen, I want to make sure that I am constantly plucking the things out of my life. And I want to beg God, and my challenge for you is to beg God and make you hyper aware of the sin that you deal with. Do you hear me? I don't want you to become used to it. I don't want it to become manageable. Listen, I have learned that I have crazy allergies. Even this past month, I started to have these crazy fits where I'd wake up in the middle of the night, my whole face would be swollen, my mouth would be swollen. I could not figure out what I ate that could produce such an allergy. All I know is that I never want that to happen to me again until I'm actively looking and researching what I need to avoid to make sure that I do not have those consequences in my life. But listen, more than the consequences, I recognize that there's something going wrong with my body that needs to be addressed. Hear me. I think we have to understand that so much more than being fearful of an allergy that we ingest, we should be Fearful of the fact that we are ingesting sin that sickens our relationship with the Lord in a major way. So what does God want us to do? In Joel chapter 2 verse 12 through 13 is where we're going to be going in a moment. And even now that it is the Lord's declaration, he says, Turn to me with all your heart with fasting, with weeping, and mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God. And what I need you to get and get some understanding is he's very specific about the sin going on in the nation. He's very specific. He said, here's how we address it. He says, I need you to start to attack these specific things. He says, turn to me with all your heart. Full focus on me. Don't allow other things to distract you. And then he says, I need you to come at me with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Listen, when have we wanted the Lord to change the hearts of ourselves and the people in our community more than we wanted dinner? Listen, can I just tell you as Baptists, I think that we have avoided the concept of fasting far too long. But I have hit it many times in messages because it's what the text says. Let me just go ahead and directly address. We don't fast in order to get God to give us what we want. We fast in order to give up what we want, to submit to what God wants. 
Listen, when we fast, we do not simply just avoid food to lose a few pounds. When we fast, what we're doing is we are avoiding things in our life that take up time and rather deciding to make our relationship with the Lord the utmost importance. What I need for you to understand today is I want for you to have more of a hunger for righteousness than a hunger for dinner. I want for you to have more of a hunger for righteousness to be happening in our community than you have to eat your breakfast. Listen, when it comes to the fact that people are going to hell where the worm never dies, where there is gnashing of teeth, where there is a flake of fire, where people are constantly being tortured and they never find relief, where we have record of a man begging the Lord to simply let a drop of water touch his tongue from hell. Recognize how horrible that is and can we not get caught up and political issues. There was all of these things going wrong in their community. All of these things going wrong. And what does he say? He says, turn to me. You think you can fix your problems? You can't fix your problems. You're the one that caused all the problems. You really think that you're going to figure this out? You really think that you're going to be able to put enough things in place to come up with this perfect society and perfect world? It doesn't exist without Jesus being the sinner. You know why we don't have perfection? Is because sin entered the world and took over from the Garden of Eden. If we would live in perfection, if we wouldn't have allowed sin to enter the world, we would not be dealing with any of the mess that we're dealing with. So how do we eradicate the sin issue? It's not about signing petitions. It's about your heart breaking over the fact that people are dying without the Lord. It's about the fact that your heart breaks, that you have drifted from the Lord's goodness. I need you to understand that when he says, tear your hearts and not just your clothes and return to the Lord your God, that's a very, very convicting statement. Because the Jews, when they would show mourning, they would tear their clothes as a sign of their hearts breaking. And what he's saying is this, is I need you to recognize it's not about the tearing of your clothes. It's about the ripping of your heart. I need to do some heart surgery on some of you. But what that really means is I need to rip it apart and give you a new one. You need to stop listening to yourself and start listening to me. And stop making much of issues that don't make much of me. Church, can I just tell you, I get so sick of hearing all of these conversations about all of the things going on in our community and everyone picking sides. Listen, the Lord did not pick a side when it came to which people he was going to follow after. You know what he decided? He was going to pick the side of righteousness and let everything else fall into place. Can I just tell you, I think if the Lord were to walk in our community right now, he'd be sickened how Christians are acting. I really do. And I know that's convicting and I know that's hurtful. I know that we have things in our life that we have been raised in certain ways and we want to hold on to certain things. Can I just ask you something? Can I just ask you something very, very personal? Is the Lord and His mission really most important to you? Is it really the most important thing to you? Listen, I'm reminded of a balloon. If I were to breathe life into a balloon, in order to keep that balloon up, what must I continuously do? I have to keep popping the balloon. It is work to keep that balloon up. But if I fill that balloon up with helium, what ends up happening? That balloon drifts up effortlessly. Hear me today. We need the breath of God in the life of our community. We need the breath of God. And how are they going to see it? And how are they going to get it by you? But if you continuously make things that don't matter, matter, 
you are going to find yourself losing out on the mission on which God called you to live. Look at this in chapter 2, verse 19. The Lord answered to his people as they repented. I am about to send you grain, new wine, fresh oil. You will be satisfied with them. That means new blessings. The Lord says he is about to pour out his blessings. He's saying, I'm about to dump so much stuff in your life. You cannot handle it. When you turn to me, when you make much of me, when you recognize that I am king and I am Lord, I can restore what I tore down. Listen, I believe that the Lord is allowing things to happen in this community and our lives to wake us up. But also, I think he's trying to do this for us to understand and to check our own hearts and go, do you care more about tradition? Do you care more about preserving? Do you care more about what's comfortable? Or do you care about me and my vision, my mission? When was the last time that you went to bed ticked off and upset at yourself for the sin that you had? When was the last time that when you went to bed ticked off and frustrated because you recognize that people do not have the Lord. Church, in a moment, I'm going to open up the altar. Here's what I'm simply going to ask. If you need to pray, go ahead and pray. If you need to come and talk to me, come and talk to me. But I want you to recognize this. We need to act like Jesus. And I think that's different than what we think it is. Do you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we have to make much of you. God, I pray that you continually help us to recognize what should break our hearts. What should break our hearts more than anything else is the fact that there are people in our community that desperately needs you and our sin gets in the way of us being able to follow through with the vision and the mission that you have placed on our hearts. Lord, we love you. God, I pray if there's anybody in here that doesn't have a relationship with you, God, I pray that you would convict them. Lord, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen.